Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And if you're just tuning in, Employee of the Month is all about work. It's where most of us have to spend our lives and A lot of us really want to spend our lives, but are not quite sure how to. And that's why I'm so excited to bring you my interview with the incredibly talented Rebecca Sofer, who has created this website, co-created this website, Modern Loss with Gabby Berkner. Uh, They're both journalists, and I strongly encourage you to check out Modern Loss, and we're going to talk about it. So um, without further ado, here's my interview with Ms. Rebecca Sofer, which was taped live at the Writers Guild. You've dabbled and delved and worked in journalism and entertainment. And I really was excited to have you on to look at how um, you've been able to tie together these different areas of expertise. You're an incredible community organizer. Um, You have such a joy for culture um, and writing and journalism, as well as fun flair, hence why you're reading Us Weekly and BuzzFeed. (laughs) Um, So it's one thing to talk to someone who's an expert at math and they're obsessed with the number six. Yes. They never look at five, and they never look at, you know, uh, seven. Right. You. Not me. Yes. <laughs> for the <laughs> record. everything, which is, well, well it's such I'm a I'm a passionate generalist. That's what I am. Now, you got to work on the Olympics, though, in college. I did, yes. Um, were you interning at NBC, or how did no, it work? No, I actually, so... Emory actually ended up being a wonderful choice for me. I made my best friends in life there. Um, as you just mentioned, I got to work at the Olympics and then later at CNN. So it, it was just the best choice. Um, I got very lucky. The Olympics, everybody in Atlanta <laughs> kind of worked for the Olympics when I was there. Because it was in Atlanta. It was in Atlanta. And um, especially at Emory, uh, NBC and ACOG, the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games, had been based there for years, you know, doing research and getting set up and trying to figure out how to get this town in order. So they went to Emory to get all the kids you know, involved in interning, yes, which is what I did for about six months during the the school year. Um, It was my sophomore year. I interned at Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games, and I was in in charge of doing, like, journalistic research on all the athletes and compiling their bios, which was actually really fun for me. It sounds so fun. Yeah, it was very very wonky. Um, So I really enjoyed that. And then that It doesn't sound very wonky, but it sounds very fun. Well, it it felt wonky because, like, I didn't get to speak to anybody it was like I was in like a little cube doing research. Um, but it translated into this really great job at the Olympics with um, with Atlanta Olympic Broadcasting, which basically is, you know, there's like one central broadcast department for the Olympics, and then it's like parsed out to, you know, NBC and, and you know, all the different channels. So I randomly was assigned the production or the assistant production of events like judo and handball and um, <laughs> like table tennis, which was actually really fun to watch. Um, the judo, I, I got really into. It was just like, you know, completely counterintuitive to everything I've I'd ever lived before, um, but I, I had some really fun experiences there. It was wild to work in an Olympic Games. I, I recommend that everybody go to an Olympics once in life. I mean, it really was amazing to just walk down, you know, hang out in the Olympic Village and collect people's pins, and, you know, everybody got into it. And I guess, like, I'm kind of editing out the fact that there was a bomb during the Olympics, oh, but which I, I happened to be present part. for. But um, wow. besides that, it was a 
really wonderful experience. And so they're rock stars, the athletes there. They are rock stars. They, um, I, <laughs> so my friends and I uh, from my production team would go out afterwards. And, and during this Olympics, Hooters became an, a perfectly acceptable place to go out. Um, it's really big in Atlanta. Um, people really do go there for the wings. Um, any any uh, run-ins with any of the athletes? Yeah. Trists? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have any trysts with athletes. However, I, I did have um, an admirer in the form of the, the gold medalist in weightlifting. Um, he was from Turkey. His name, I think... I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly. It, it was something like Naim Sumangulu, and he was, um, this would be very impressive to most people, except for he was known as Pocket Hercules because he was really tiny. So there's nothing to be jealous of. He was like this really tiny guy who happened to be shockingly strong and just would like lift with brute force. He would just lift all this weight. And he, for some reason, became enamored of me um, and would wait outside my production trailer um, with like cigarettes to offer me, which was interesting because I've never smoked a cigarette a day in my life, nor well, will I. And that he's an Olympic athlete. <laughs> No. Oh, yeah, the dirty secret is that, like, they all smoke. And especially from, like, the Eastern European region, they would all just kind of, like, it, it was almost like they were roadies. And they, you know, outside of, like, the concert, you know, like, behind the Beacon Theater, they're all, like, smoking their cigarettes during the show or after the show. That's what these athletes would do. Um, so Naeem um, met me at, you know, in production, and um, I guess he liked me. And he kept inviting me to the discotheque. Um, <laughs> So, which was Hooters, which was Hooters, mm -hmm. and um, we obviously, you know, we all went out as a group because I'm not that stupid, <laughs> and um, it was a fun night. But he, he, you know, he sent me flowers. He found my home phone number. Um, you know, we didn't end up together. Let's just put it that way. Now, you also mentioned Cuba, and you have a real love and passion um, for South and Central America. I and I wanted to hear a little bit. You went on to work in Venezuela. I did. Yes, I'm the I'm the gringa who I'm the nice Jewish girl from the Philadelphia suburbs. <laughs> well, I should mention because you were talking about Catherine Hepburn, you look like Catherine Hepburn with oh, the blonde hair. So nice of you. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom was a teacher in San Francisco in the '60s and '70s, and a lot of her students were kids of Mexican immigrants. So a lot of her kids did not speak English, and she basically, being the awesome, functional, you know constantly working hippie that she was, she learned Spanish very well and would teach them English by putting on records, like she would put on like the soundtrack to Hair and teach them English by playing Good Morning Starshine and would learn Spanish by asking them to sing her songs. So um, when I was a little girl growing up in this like really nice um, like waspy slash Jewish um, suburb of Philadelphia, she would always speak to me in Spanish. And I would always ask her why she was speaking to me in Spanish. And she would say, because the world doesn't end at the end of our street. And it's much bigger than this. It's much bigger than your neighbors and who you're seeing, you know, my, all my white neighbors, et cetera. And she said, you know, you, you need to learn Spanish because it's the future. Everybody is going to speak it. And I have to say that that's like a lot of foresight for... It's unbelievable. My, yeah. my, my senior thesis 20 years after your mom was so prescient in her thought um, was on adolescent pregnancy in the Latino community because it was the only thing going up in America. And so for your mom to know that 20 years earlier than oh, yeah. that. No, she, she knew. 
So by the time it came to um, graduate from college, I was working at CNN, another benefit of going to Emory. Um, CNN had just launched a 24-hour news network in Spanish, CNN en Español, <laughs> wonderful name. And en Español. En Español. <laughs> and I was the gringa working at the assignment desk. I was interning there. I interned there for an entire year, but was given like packages to produce and stories to assign. And my the, the man I was working primarily with was Venezuelan and still is. And by the, when it came time to graduate, just like everybody else who had a liberal arts education, I had no idea what I was going to do next. And, you know, so whereas some of my friends were like, I'm just applying to law school, or others were just immediately going to work at Anderson Consulting, which was really big back then. I just wanted to move to Latin America, and he really encouraged me. He just said, you know, you have this skill. You can speak Spanish, but you also can kind of bridge cultures because you understand the culture. I mean, you really enjoy it. You're like a sponge for it. I, you know, was dancing salsa. I just loved every aspect of it. And he just said, you know, you got to move there. You have to spend at least a year working there so that you're not just another American who speaks Spanish because this, you can really own it but you need to just move and work there. So I knew I wanted to do something for pay and something that needed my skill set. So I joined this organization. I applied to a job in Argentina and then their economy completely crashed. Um, so that wasn't happening because they had no money whatsoever. They were issuing like script instead of, instead of printed money. They were like, you know, kind of like barter, like, um, they were called patacones. They're, it was like fake money, like vouchers for money. Um, that's how bad the economy was there at the time. So instead, I was offered a job at the, of all places, the Venezuelan American Chamber of Commerce in Caracas. Uh, <laughs> and I had never thought about spending any time living in Caracas, but my boss at CNN was Venezuelan, and he said, you know, I was an international politics major at Emory with a minor in Latin American and Caribbean politics, so it was up my alley. And he said, you know, history is being made right now. There's this man running for president. His name is Hugo Chavez. And it's really exciting down there. And you really will see some really interesting stuff if this is where you choose to go. Yeah. I think the other thing that is so uh, exciting about Latin America is seeing people who didn't necessarily need to put themselves in harm's way, citizens of these going out yeah. and, and protesting. And I don't think I've ever yeah. seen that where, where, you know, we talk a lot about the inertia in America among the educated. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just such a tremendous inspiration to see all of these people in Latin America not so long ago who, who were willing to put themselves at risk for what they believed in and for yep. the future. Today, I mean, today, just even today, right now as we speak, there are hundreds of thousands probably of people marching throughout Venezuela. And, and sadly, some of them are getting shot to death yes. this week because they're protesting the government. And it's been a long time coming. Like, I don't want to be viewed as like the pundit that's like anti-Venezuelan government, but it's, it's really tough. Like Chavez really messed up the country. It's a really um, beautiful place. My heart, part of my heart is there. I, I have so many friends there who are like family and to see a country where they will hold you up at gunpoint for your running shoes, which happened to me um, at a bus stop in plain daylight. Um, that's really sad when it's a country that has so much natural wealth that everybody could probably be okay if it were managed correctly. You came back from Venezuela, how come? <clears throat> I came back because I got a fax from my mother that had two words on it. 
And those words were, it's time. <laughs> because I'd been there for, oh gosh, almost two years. And I had been robbed at gunpoint, as I mentioned. And then someone came in and stole all my CDs in my office. Um, I <laughs> and then the, the final one was um, I had an apartment about a block away from where these protests are happening in Caracas right now, which is actually in a very kind of affluent area called Altamira. And um, I remember it was the, the Atlanta Braves were in the World Series. And so I had my little foam tomahawk um, because for some reason I brought that with me to Venezuela. Such an important and for some reason I was a Braves fan, you know. Um, <laughs> we should point that this was before 9-11 because yes. otherwise you would be very careful what you put in your suitcase yes. weight-wise. True, yes. <laughs> oh, the, but the, it, was, it was a foam, yes. <laughs> I mean, never mind. I'm not like weird, crazy, like bringing around tomahawks everywhere. But um, I'm sure there are some people like that. But I had my foam tomahawk. I remember I was watching the World Series. I lived alone. I fell asleep. And then I woke up and had the distinct knowledge that someone was in my apartment with me in the dark. And I felt them sit on my bed. And I really, I think it's probably like, I almost feel like I might have had a stroke and don't even have proof that I had one. I, it was the scariest moment of my entire life. Um, I, I, had, I really thought that like someone was gonna seriously hurt me and, um, and they did and I, I played, I, I pretended to be completely asleep. I think that my adrenaline, you know, which normally makes you really anxious and, you know, move fast, it, it enabled me to just stay put and pretend to be asleep. And um, they left. And when I, I didn't even move for hours, I was so scared. I woke up in the morning and someone had completely removed the sliding glass door um, on, the, on my second story bedroom window and had come in and had stolen everything from my television to my hiking boots. It was, in, it was insane. And thank God did not, I mean, didn't touch me. I mean, I, I got really lucky. I went to J school hoping that I could go that, in that production route. I wanted to produce um, really wonderful thought pieces on network TV. Um, and it was still an option. People were still getting hired at 60 Minutes. They were still getting hired at CBS. Um, you know, there was no HuffPo. However, when I graduated J school, there was a HuffPo because it launched the day that I graduated. Wow. And it was a day that I think everybody in my class remembers. We all kind of looked at each other and we were like, hmm. Like we really had no idea what was going on. I chose Columbia because it's a year long program as opposed to two years long. So technically, you know, less money, less time that you're, you, you have to spend before you get back out there again. And it's super prestigious. So, you know, if you say you went to Columbia Journalism School, at least it gets your foot in the door in a lot of places. Um, now, HuffPo is a place that didn't pay uh, most of its uh, writers, and it considers itself, it takes itself very seriously as a, a journalistic resource, and you went to work <laughs> for a place that everyone takes very seriously as a journalistic resource, but it I did. Tells, it tells everyone that it is not a journalistic resource. You made the transition to be an, a producer at the Colbert Report. Yeah. And you got to work on one of my favorite, favorite, favorite ongoing segments, um, getting to know your U.S. representative. There are yes. 435 of them. Yes, Better Know a District. Better Know yeah. a District. Mm -hmm. So I started at Colbert as, um, I was working as a researcher, which is basically like helping come up with stories, helping the writers support their pieces as they're writing because, you know, the writers there are 
they're in the Writers Guild. They're, you know, they're, they're lampoon writers or whatnot. They're, they're comedians. Um, I'm not a comedian. I get the narrative arc of things. Like, I can see the comedy in it and I can help form it. But I, I'm not a comedy writer. Um, I would never pretend to be, you know, <laughs> as funny as these people are. But I get it and I love it and I can, I can help augment it. So I started as a researcher because, frankly, there were people with doctorates <laughs> applying to work at Colbert. There were people with, like, law degrees applying to be, you know, PAs at this show because Stephen had such a strong following. I applied because halfway through journalism school, I had this epiphany that was kind of like, I really don't want to work at Live at Five and work for like $20,000 a year on a story scaring people into like, what your toilet paper isn't telling you, you know, find out in 12 minutes. Because I knew that was what it was going to be. And it's kind of the way it still is. Um, at CNN, I learned very, very quickly that if it bleeds, it leads. That's just the way it is. Sometimes it is the story that's really worth knowing about. But oftentimes it's like, you know, like how much you know, Nancy Grace, can we take, you know, how many of these stories can we take? I just decided I'd been a show, I'd been a huge fan of The Daily Show since even before Jon Stewart was the host. And then when Stephen was on The Daily Show, I was such a huge Stephen fan. And when I heard he was getting his own show, which was when I was in grad school, I just was like, that's where I need to go. Like, that's where I'm taking this degree. <laughs> if I could work anywhere, I would say the Colbert Report. It seems like such a dreamy place to work in the particular <laughs> um, series that you did, Better, Better Know a District, um, is so much fun. So would you go with Stephen to these various districts? Yeah, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was really wild. I mean, first of all, to get it's just a miracle that I that I got hired. I think you know I was really lucky. I was one. Of, I was on the original staff, so I was there with everybody when everybody was building the show. So I was in on all the writers' room meetings, and when we were talking about you know, everyone's talking about the word truthiness, and like that's going to be the first word. And um, you know I had a wonderful, wonderful boss who you've interviewed before, Allison Silverman, who is you know just one of my role models in life. She's just a classy, extremely talented, super smart wonderful mensch um, and it was just wonderful and eventually after you know supporting these writers I there was an opening for an associate field producer which was I always wanted to do field because that gets you out of the studio and I applied for it by pitching you know my own bizarre warped stories that I thought would be good for the show and I was chosen which is great um, so that's when I got to you know go down to DC every month or so with the crew you know with a crew with Steven um, we would take Amtrak down and it was just such a wild ride we would you know I had to smuggle the weirdest things into the house office buildings as a producer you know you bring all the props you bring like just the weirdest crap and um, you know and it was still early early enough in the show that it wasn't like, not everyone was in on the joke well, just I remember, yet. <laughs> I remember Barney Frank, who oh my God, is he was known, so pissed. <laughs> yes, and he was known for having such a, fu a funny sense of humor. I mean, he's known for having a sense of humor, and he was so upset. Yeah, he was not happy. I did not work on that. Actually, a really good friend of mine who's still at the show worked on that, and he was not. He was totally not happy. And I was so surprised, because I always thought that he was like such a funny guy. Not happy. Um, but then there were like other people who were just, they were so fun, and you just, it's so counterintuitive. You're like, you're not fun. Yes, you are. You're totally fun. Um, so, yeah, it was really, really great because I would say that it was a really wonderful combination of my journalistic qualities because I did, you know, the research on these people and it was very politically interesting to me. So, you know, but at the same time, 
you know, you go down with Stephen and, you know, he's going off on all these bizarre tangents with these politicians and it's hilarious. I mean, the outtakes, I can't even imagine what it must be. I mean, just to listen to, the, to all the stuff that didn't make it to air, um, it was almost like I, you know, I would have paid money to be able to, to hear that stuff. Do they ever censor you and say you cannot put that on the air? Um, I don't, I don't know because I was never, I mean, I, I'm trying to think, I personally never experienced something like that. I mean, I know that, you know, things go through the legal department at Comedy Central, um, but in terms of from the politician side, I would say the, the biggest uphill battle was convincing them to come on the show in the first place, and that was part of my job too. I basically would cold call representatives' offices, and I made it my job to become like friendy, friendy with you know, their chiefs of staff, their PR people. Um, and again, I would just, you know, this was not like, it's not like 2014 when it's like everyone is scrambling to get on the show. It's like the Colbert bump, right? That came out of that Better Know a District piece, which was people actually were experiencing a bump in their, you know, in their ratings after being on the show. And I just kind of had to try and convince these people that if you sent your representative on the show and he proved to have a sense of humor and you know, kind of roll with it. He was going to win over younger people, younger viewers, because that's how I was won over. And you know, it was tough, but we convinced a hell of a lot of people to come on the show, and and a lot of people who were Republicans who you would think wouldn't come on the show. And and sometimes it went just terribly, terribly wrong for them, and it was awesome. Well, I would also think that the hardest part is when someone who you couldn't disagree more with politically ends up being a perfectly nice person and really funny. Yeah, totally. And yeah. then someone who you so appreciate their politics yeah. and they're such a schmuck. Yeah, yeah. No, there are, there are some really great people. I would say, like, I think my favorite one that I actually wasn't in on, but I, I just distinctly remember it was so awkward. It was um, Lynn Westmoreland. He's a representative from, I think, South Carolina. And he he's you know, Republican, and he his whole platform was like, he wanted the Ten Commandments to appear, you know, everywhere <laughs> in his district. Yes. So he was like really fighting for that. And I think Stephen just asked him outright, you know, Representative, <laughs> Congressman, what are the Ten Commandments? <laughs> and like, he could not answer the question. <laughs> like, I think, I, 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 on, like, you could look it up. He's like, oh, no, no, I don't laugh, don't steal. <laughs> And then he like, he, he like trailed off after three or four or something, and it was so awkward. And that's when I was like, God, I'm so proud to be a part of the show because, that, yeah, I went to Columbia Journalism School and some of my colleagues are, you know, on route to winning Pulitzers, but, you know, I'm, on a, I'm with a staff that's on route to winning a Peabody and being nominated for an Emmy for, you know, getting people really, really interested in this stuff. So, you know, the, the medium is the message. Um, while this is going on, you, life is happening. Life is happening. And I wanted to talk about your life because um, it ended up segueing <laughs> um, you into the next part of your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it was 2006, and the show had been nominated for some Emmys in its first year, first season on air, which is amazing. And 
the, the you know, the, the, and Stephen, who I assume he was involved in the decision, someone made the very, very magnanimous decision to bring the entire staff to the Emmys. So it was amazing. I got to go to the Emmys and, you know, like we didn't win, but it didn't really matter. It was yeah. just like so much fun. We got our hair done, makeup done. It was just like so, such a wonderful um, experience. And a week after that experience, um, I was picked up from the airport by my parents for our annual camping trip. We, ever since I was, you know, born, I think they brought me when I was two months old for the first time, we went camping in Lake George, which is in the Adirondacks. It's a gorgeous place. It's like 32 mile long lake. We would go camping in the islands. Um, no electricity, no running water. I think this actually must sound like hell for some people, but for me it's paradise. And um, <clears throat> on the way back from that annual camping trip, my mother was killed in a car accident and my dad was in the car with her, and they had just dropped me off at my apartment just about an hour beforehand. So I was still wearing the clothes, like I still like literally had not showered in 10 days, if, you know, if you're not counting lake water as showering. And I was just, you know, kind of sitting on my sofa, going through emails, um, contemplating, like my worst, like my biggest like source of agita was like, oh my God, am I going to email the guy back who wants to go on a blind date with me? That was like the last, I think that was actually what I was thinking of. And I was actually truly stressed out about it. That was like my big stressor. Um, and then the, the phone rang and um, it was, uh, my father has um, three sons from previous marriage and he was driving the car and he called me and said, there's been, a, there's been an accident and your mom is really hurt. And it was like awful. I mean, I, I don't purposely spend a lot of time thinking about that moment, but remembering it with you right now, I mean, my whole body just freezes. And I remember just completely freezing and, um, you know, forcing him to tell me that she was still alive and hearing my dad screaming in the background and, you know, hearing you know, alarms or sirens. And he said, you know, she's, she is, she, she's really, it's really bad. Um, and so please come. Now keep in mind, I lived in New York, hence I had no car. It was midnight on Labor Day. So, <laughs> and he was calling me from the Jersey Turnpike from like, all I got was like, I'm like, where are you? He's like, exit 8A. Like that, like that, that was literally the information that I had. So I, um, and he said, she's being taken to, to Princeton, like she's being like medevaced to Princeton Hospital, um, you know, come there now. And so I called my, my best friend who thankfully has always had a car, weirdly in the city, and she and her husband picked me up at a second's notice. They were just in front of my door and I ran out. I mean, I brought nothing with me. I brought my phone. That's, I didn't even bring my wallet. I just ran out of my apartment and we just drove aim like like you know bats out of hell down the turnpike to the hospital and I just knew like I knew the whole time that she she didn't make it um and she hadn't and I I ran in and you know it was really really quiet in the ER there there were like no emergencies going on which was so freaky to me it was just so quiet that it just meant nothing good and I the first person I saw was, I just went into every room until I found my father, who was in bed, like he had like broken a thumb or something and had a, a bandage on his head and just, he just started crying and said, I'm so sorry. And that's when I found out and it was awful. It was um, something, there was something in the road. And um, so my 
you know, my brother swerved to avoid it. And I guess, I'll, you know, I'll never know because I was never there, but the car flipped over and my mom was, you know, thrown out. And I like to think, I, I have to think that she, that it was really quick. Um, and I think it was. So it was, it was awful. Awful. Yeah, it was, it was really bad. And then when you think it can't get worse. Well, there's this, like, Isaac Besheva singer tale that, like, I don't know if they taught you in Hebrew school, but, like, it's like, it could always be worse. And, like, I think I always have to say it in the Jackie Mason accent. But they, like, force-fed you that story in Hebrew school. It's like, you know, it's like, um, I don't know, it's like they're complaining that they, like, live in a shuttle and, like, they live with a donkey. And it's like, no, it could always be worse. And then they throw, like, a diseased chicken in. It could always be worse. And then it's just, like, it really could always be worse. So I thought it couldn't be worse. Um, but I was wrong. Um, it was a really awful experience for me. My mother was my best friend. She yes. was an amazing woman. I mean, she was amazing. There were 300 people at her funeral, ranging from her very best friends in life to her dental hygienist. I mean, it was, she was an incredibly, incredibly wonderful, warm, encouraging, hilarious, smart, open woman. And I was lucky to have her for, you know, 30 years. I was 30 when she died. And, um, you know, I have some friends who will never have that quality of relationship with their moms in 70 years that I, I got to have with her in 30. But, you know, losing her, it's not like, I was too close to really recognize that. It was, it was a tremendous loss. I'm an only child, um, and it was really just the worst. It sounds like you recognized it. It yeah, yeah. like you really knew. <laughs> I was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a really awful time. It took a long time for me to find the team of people to really help me. I mean, I was really alone. I really was. Like, I have amazing friends. I'm not like some misfit who like sucks my thumb and sits on my sofa and doesn't go out. I had not amazing yet. friends. Not, not yet. yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, but I do have a newborn, so it could be in my near future. But, um, you know, I, I, that said, even with so many people who love you, you can still feel the loneliest that a human can feel. And that's how I felt. And my dad really retreated. She was the love of his life. Um, he could not really bear to talk about her uh, unless it came from his need to talk about her. Like I would wake up and there would be these emails, long emails that he had written at three in the morning because he had no one to talk to about her except for me. And there would be these long emails and it, would, it was excruciating because it was like talking about their love affair and how much he loved her. And it was just like really like twisting a knife in my heart. He had no one else to really talk to. So he was yeah. dumping on me. And so I felt like I was trying to take care of myself and take care of him. And I was going to Philadelphia every weekend and then going to work on a daily television comedy show <laughs> during the week. That was, it was challenging. Um, to say the least. Yeah, I had to put on a lot of faces. Like, I really had to put on a lot of different, you know, <laughs> different different faces for the world. And it became very, very draining. It was a really, really tough role or roles to play. Um, it was really challenging. And, um, and then a few years later, sadly, uh, my father passed away. So my parents died both um, within four years of each other. And um, it was a very different circumstance. My father was older than my mom, even though I fully expected him to live. You know, like my grandmother died when she was 105, so I yes. really did expect him to live for like 20 more years. He was 88 when he died. Um, my mom was 64, however. So, you know, I view that as like not time. Um, he was on a cruise with a, a companion who he had um, taken up with. 
uh, after my mom died and had a heart attack and died. And it was, it was awful. I mean, it was just like I had been sleeping with the phone next to my bed for four years. I, the, the, day, the night my mom died, I slept with the phone next to my bed because I always waited for the call about my father. I mean, it sounds awful, but it's true. I was like, it's, it's coming. I want to be ready. I don't want to not be near the phone. Um, it really, just like me and the phone, we are like not copacetic at all. Like, I'm very bad with voicemails. It's, you know, that's like the thing that stayed with me is that like the phone is not my friend. Um, and so, you know, the call, thankfully, it, you know, I, 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 it was a different stage in my life. I was newly married to a really amazing man who, you know, it kills me to say, you know, he'll never meet my mom. But, you know, but he came into my life. So I'm so grateful. He's awesome. And, um, and he was the one who, weirdly, I had had the day off of work and I was just catching up on emails again. This is like the leitmotif of like the death news in my life. But I was sitting on my bed, catching up on emails, hadn't showered yet, like, you know, does this ring a bell? And my husband walked in and he was like green and he, he told me that my dad had died. And it was, again, it was, it was really bad. Um, but I, I think I handled that one in a different way because it, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop for so long, and also he was older. Um, so instead, yes, I went, you know, I arranged the, you know, the funeral. It was awful. Everything about it was awful. Awful, awful, only child, terrible, you know, hit me that, like, I'm, like, an orphan. So I, like, started picturing, like, you know, Oliver, <laughs> like, all the Charles Dickens characters. I'm like, I'm one of you now. And it was very surreal. But it hadn't all hit me yet because it was so close to, you know, to the event. So this time around, I planned the funeral. I was really good at it by this point. Um, you know, kick-ass funeral and <laughs> great shiva. I felt like the onus was always on me to make everybody feel comfortable about my situation. Now you've created a forum with um, Gabby Berkner, Gabriella Berkner. Yes, who just had um, her baby last week. <laughs> well, we will wish her a congratulations from here and hope she gets some sleep in the upcoming years because she yeah, won't be getting them hilarious. right now. That's <laughs> hilarious. Um, uh, the two of you went through so much pain. She also lost her um, parents as well. She lost her father her. and stepmother. Yes. yes. Um, and. You created a forum together with Gabby Berkner uh, to help others so that the loss and the onus didn't have to be on them, or at least they didn't have to be alone. And I, I really wanted to talk about uh, Modern Loss. Mm -hmm. Modernloss.com, people should check out um, whether you've lost someone personally, whether you know someone who's lost someone. Um, inevitably, this means every single person out there mm -hmm. can check out Modern Loss. Um, it is an unbelievably unique resource that really talks about death in a way that I've never ever seen before. And it was clear that you created something from the most painful experience that anyone could possibly go through. Right. I mean, my mom always said, you can, <laughs> you can, <laughs> you can make chicken shit or chicken salad. <laughs> I don't know really how you make chicken shit, but you know, it's like a really like vivid, <laughs> you know, it's like a very imaginative saying. So I really did want to make chicken salad. Um, and it's really hard to. I mean, it's, it's hard to for years. <laughs> it was hard for me. Um, I experienced a lot of really, really, really difficult experiences in processing the death of my mother and then my father. And then also like the existential crisis that is knowing that there is nothing before and nothing after you. And you know, there hasn't been anything after me until two months ago when I had my baby boy. Um, 
for years, it was just nothing. <laughs> and it's a really, really, really untethered feeling to have. It's really scary and it's really bleak. And it's, you know, and it's not like I was walking around like a bleak, scary person. I, people actually thought I was like super happy and I was at many times, but you know, just in the pit of my stomach, feeling like I didn't belong to anything. And so awful. And I'm such like, the irony is I'm such a family person. I'm such a parent person. You know, like I love parents. Like I love all, you know, like they're great. So I just start, realized that, you know, the more I started talking about my reality to people and owning it, um, the more comfortable I felt. Really, the, the better I felt. It was like I didn't have to spend so much energy putting on this face of like, yes, everything is fine in my life. You know, it's the more I... I spoke about, yes, my mom passed away or my dad passed away or this. It, it became less of a thing that I felt like I was going to break down while I was talking about and more of a thing that was like, this happened to me and this is a huge part of me, but I don't have to like make it the point of our conversation. It's just something that happened to me and you know, let's move on in our conversation. And it, it really did have a very, very healing quality. It was very empowering. I felt like you know, the onus was less on me to make people feel comfortable and the onus was more on me to make me feel comfortable because it's not up to other people. People don't feel comfortable talking about death. They don't feel comfortable talking about loss. They don't wanna know what's gonna happen to them. And especially like around our age or younger, yeah, I mean, you totally don't wanna feel like it's gonna happen to you. You're so young, you feel like immortal. What I love about modern loss is that it enables anyone to have a conversation about death mm -hmm. and see it as a part of life. Absolutely, and, and not just that, but by extension, all the messy things that really are associated with loss. Um, there are so many stories that we publish, so what it is is a site, it's a content site that, that publishes essays written by people who have experienced loss, mostly younger, you know, 20, 30-something, 40-something year olds, although, you know, we're not exclusive to that. It's just that that's what we know and that's what was missing for us, so we wanted to provide a, a forum for, for these stories. Of all the messy things, like, I mean, you know, my dad got together with someone who was, like, not awesome, you know, like, and I felt really alone in that until... I started talking to other people who had the same situation, and I felt better. And, you know, um, my mom, you know, she died, and, and, you know, so many really awful things happened afterwards that I, you know, I won't go into here. But I started eventually meeting people who had experienced similar things, and it made me feel so much better, like I wasn't going crazy, like this didn't just happen to me, or that just, you know, that magical 365-day period of time where everyone thinks that you're supposed to be okay on day 366, you know, didn't come, because I still felt awful on day 366. Well, it turns out there are a lot of other people out there who feel the same way. So by providing this platform for people to write these essays about their experiences, by extension, my hope and what, what's happened is that it reaches other people who are going through the same thing and that makes them feel less lonely, less isolated. It, it really does. I mean, we launched the site in November and one of our essays was, was about a woman who lost her husband suddenly and then found out like a couple years later that he had been conducting multiple affairs. And she never got a chance, and she, she didn't know when he was alive. And she never got a chance to, like, you know, throttle his neck and murder him, you know, all over again for, um, for doing so. And so, you know, but guess what? All these people wrote her and were like, oh, my God, this happened to me. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, it's really, there are a lot of, there's, I just feel like 
we're opening up the conversation. You know, we're not like changing history, whatever. If, if we can just open up the conversation and reach other people who've gone through these really painful experiences, being, be it losing a friend, losing, you know, a family member, losing a pet. I mean, because that, you know, you and I are dog owners. <laughs> we get it. Like, they're people too. Um, you know, then we can really maybe do a very small part in changing the conversation surrounding death. It's been an incredibly helpful website. There are pieces on everything from how to deal with um, packing up the house, dealing with the funeral business, which makes the uh, pet and baby industry look like they're really thoughtful uh, <laughs> in terms of how to exploit people in their worst moments. There are things on uh, fighting over you know, the estate and the inheritance with your siblings and having to negotiate things. There's mm -hmm. things about selfies at funerals from teens, how yep. shows like Girls show how other people who don't know what it's like to lose someone actually think. And I really encourage you to go there. I also encourage you to check out uh, one of Rebecca's essays um, on Cinco de Maya and how she gave it a shot. And obviously, this is only when one is ready or if one is ready, but it's, you're always ready to read the essay about celebrating the life. And that's also what I wanted to say that I mm. love so much both about your writing and the website, that it, it does a wonderful delicate balance mm -hmm. of dealing with what is the reality and how do I deal with this and here oh someone else has this too okay great you can reach out and you can contribute and uh, meaning you can respond to their essays you can contribute your own um, and find out resources for how to deal with these things and then it also has these poignant essays about how to celebrate the life of the yeah. person who you have had to say goodbye to in this lifetime. Yeah, and yeah, because, you know, and you hit on a very, very important aspect of our mission, which is not to just, like, provide a place for people to wallow in their loss. I've, I've had a wonderful life. I mean, I, you know, I'm doing a project that I'm super passionate about that is combining my journalism skills and my community organizing skills and my creativity um, and also my personal background. So it's something that's, like, I'm very passionate about I you know, have a family I love. I never thought I'd have any of these things a few years back. So in spite of myself, I'm having a really awesome life. And I never, I swear to God, I never thought that was going to happen. So you know, one of the missions of, of our site is to really show people that they can thrive in spite of loss. And I think that's a really important message to get through, especially to the readership that we have, which, you know, I, I think, you know, is, is, is primarily, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, which is that there is so much of life. Like, yes, the shitty thing is you lose someone and there's so much of life ahead of you and you have to go through it without them. But the good thing is that there's so much of life ahead of you. So let's help you live it in a really, really wonderful way. I mean, just because you lost someone does not mean that your life is over. And I think that by sharing these stories and by drawing people out of their isolation, it kind of helps them deal with it and also feel it doesn't erase it. I mean, you can't erase the things that happen to you. Like, I will always have a pit in my stomach when I tell you about the night my mom died or, you know, I'll always be so angry that she's never going to get to meet my my son. I mean, it's it's there are all these awful things, but knowing that you're not the only one out there, I have to say it makes it better. It just makes it better. It, 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 it makes you feel like there's a community. And these days, you know, we live in a very wired society where we're on our you know, we're on our iPhones all the time. We're getting pinged from work and texting and email and phones and this and that. And we're always working. And, you know, we're not living, like, near the majority of our family and friends. We don't live across the street from them. So we don't really have instant community all the time. So 
our hope, Gabby's, and my hope is that this site really provides an online forum for this to exist. And, and you know, we obviously hope to expand this into real life get togethers where people can actually share, you know, hard alcohol together because that helps. Well, I want to thank you for making my life and everyone else's that much richer. It is so wonderful to have you Aww. here. You're a, a, a beautiful journalist and instrumental. Um, and I think you are changing history in, in how we look at mourning um, and also how we celebrate life, both the ones that are present with us and the ones who we've had to say goodbye to. Rebecca Sofer, I'm so happy to have you on. Please go check out Modern Loss, everyone. And thank you so, so much for being on Employee of the Month. Thank you, Katie. It's been such an honor. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you so much to Ian Mazoff for editing this together. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a nice review on iTunes. If you're in New York, come to a live taping the next two are April 10th and May 3rd. Either way, thank you so much. And I hope that this interview inspired you to either finish that novel, quit your day job, maybe get a day job, or self-medicate. And if it's self-medicating, don't do it alone. I'm available for a drink. <laughs> <laughs>